Welcome to the ENA Podcast. This is the ENA Podcast, and we are back in Milwaukee again. So if you caught the last episode with Lieutenant Brian Murphy, you know that we are in Milwaukee for the Fall Regional Symposium. And I'm excited to be back with another on-site live interview here. And right now, I've got another one of our dynamic uh, presenters this afternoon, Terry Campbell, who presented the tongue twister of a title, Trials, Tribulations of Terrible Tot Transfers and Takeaway Tidbits, which if I tried to explain it, I would not do it justice. So we brought Terry here to talk a little bit about it. So welcome to the ENA podcast, Terry. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so first off, let's just talk a little bit about who you are, um, a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Um, okay. So when I started out as a wee little nurse, I was a high-risk labor and delivery nurse, and I was doing that for about 10 years, and at the time, the, the ED in the trauma center that I worked at had a mass exodus of nurses, and so they called the other critical care areas and said, hey, can you come down and help us triage? Well, if I was smarter, I would have said, huh, mass exodus of nurses, but <laughs> I didn't, and I said, I'm a gamer. I'll go down. So back at the time, this is in 1995, it was before they actually really realized that triage is the most important job in the ED. And actually they thought, well, this is where we put old nurses going out to pasture, so maybe this L&D nurse won't kill anybody. So as I was helping out in triage, I had this shocking revelation that 50% of the population owned a penis. Who knew? (laughs) Who knew? And I realized that there was this whole area of medicine that I really did not know. And I wasn't competent. And it terrified me. And I decided the only way to not be afraid was to transfer to the ER. So I went to the ER. um, I worked there for five years, um, completely embraced and loved by my ER friends. Because when I first showed up, I said, let's just pretend that I know nothing. And they were okay with that and they taught me my craft. Um, And then in 2000, I became a flight nurse and um, I'm currently a flight nurse at the University of Chicago. I'm also the executive director of a cardiac arrest study for the state of Illinois called Illinois Heart Rescue. Um, I have a consulting company called TLC Medical Education. And with my abundant spare time, Um, I'm working on my master's, which I thought was a good idea, but I'm struggling right now. (laughs) One of the things that stands out to me as someone who's not a clinician are people that are masters of the craft, and that takes on many different forms. So you said something today that jumped out at me about doing case study presentations, and that's what you did today was a case study presentation, but you did this in a way that you can tell from the audience they're resonating. They're talking along with you like it's a concert because they're trying to sing the words with you about what the next steps were. Talk about your style because I'm picking up on fun and lively and real. Talk about how you put this all together and and why this has been a good vehicle for you to talk about your expertise, but also talk about being a human being doing this job. Well, I, I have a passion. I love teaching. Um, I love education, but I also love to teach the way I like to learn. Um, Usually, every time I lecture, I give a disclaimer that I think I'm hilarious, but not everybody (laughs) gets me. And that um, if this is the line of appropriate, I 
like to dance the line of appropriate. My typical audience is pre-hospital and ED nurses, and those are my peeps. Sure. And they usually get me. Um, But I find that when you tell stories and you make it real and then you weave in physiology, pathophysiology, treatments, lessons learned, and then more stories and then a joke and then some humble stories, people get it because then they can relate. I'm not this super big brain that everyone in the audience is like, yeah, I'm not going to be that person. But I'm honestly me. I'm a very real, flawed, super fun, sarcastic, inappropriate nurse. <laughs> There's a lot of layers in all of this. I know. <laughs> and one of the things that really jumps out at me is that um, these cases that you presented and the way that you do it, um, the message is not lost in anything that you're doing that might be out of the, the norm in terms of what a professional presenter, whatever those are, might do. But kind of encapsulate why you put this package of cases together. Why are these cases that keep you up at night, that make you do that really deep, dark self-assessment about what did I do wrong? But talk about why you picked these cases, and then we'll get into a little bit of the self-assessment part of things. So I I chose these cases because um, frequently when I talk with my ED peers, the clinical areas I give them the most pucker are really sick pediatric patients and um, high-risk OB. So I wanted this lecture to be scenarios that were all pediatric cases, and I specifically wanted to pick cases it didn't really go well, either because of mistakes that myself and my team made, be it in assessment, be it in treatment, be it in something safety related, or mistakes that we inherited from other clinicians or from the pre-hospital world or families waited too long to bring kids sure. in. Um, uh, as I mentioned to the audience, we've all sat through phenomenal lectures with speakers that were just in awe of how big their brain is, but at the same time have kind of had that feeling of, I'm, I'm never going to be that smart. I, I'm never right. going to be that great. And I really um, am a bit hellbent on changing nursing culture. I want to improve patient safety and I want to improve crew safety And the only way we can do that is by admitting when things didn't go well or when we have questions or when we just want to do things better than the first time we did it. So I collected cases that all had an area that retrospectively we turned a critical eye and said, "Mm, I don't want to do that again. Sure. So that can take you into an interesting place because self-assessment, you have to really bury yourself, one, to do it in the first place, but then to put it out in front of an audience. Where where does that strength come from to say, it's better for me to do this and to preach that type of culture because it's going to make everybody better and it's going to make patient care better in the long run? But I'm sure that's still not easy to get up there and no matter how many times you do that presentation to point that out because there may be somebody who sits there and goes, huh, that's kind of funny that... You know, you did it that way. You did it wrong. Talk about just kind of burying yourself in that respect and why the greater good is what's important here. So 
again, it is humbling. And I think a lot of us in ED, in pre-hospital, in transport, we kind of joke and we say, throw your shoulders back, chin up, fake it till you make it. Sure. That carries you so far. But the end consequences, I may do something that causes patient harm. Or, at a minimum, I might not be the most effective clinician for my patient. So worst case scenario, I'm going to cause harm. Best case scenario, I'm not going to be the best version of me. Sure. And it's important that we change that culture. It's important that I, I spoke specifically to newer nurses today in the audience that were between one and five years clinician. And um, I, I raised him up and then I knocked him down. I said, you have learned so much. You're fantastic clinicians. Look how far you've come. And you're a hair away from dangerous. And I wanted to kind of grab him and catch their attention because Again, we get to this point in our career where we think we can no longer ask questions. We think that we're supposed to know it all. I've been a nurse for 34 years. Dear God, you don't remember how to do this kind of math calculation? Every time I do a math calculation, I have somebody double-check my math. So being able to say it's okay to start sentences with, I used to know this. I think I knew this. Oh my gosh, I never knew that. And that's okay. Because that is what's going to protect patients. And that's what's going to keep all of us safe. It builds some team team spirit as well, only because there's not one person saying, I've got it all figured out and you're following me. It's how are we all going to do this together? Right. And in each of the scenarios that you talked about, there is a team component to it. And as you pointed out, the something went wrong in each of these things. Out of the handful that you shared today, just kind of summarize one of them that maybe you felt like you were in a good place, but that self-assessment showed you this is maybe where we went. We could have gone a different direction and maybe something could have gone better for this patient. So which of those, which of those is one that you kind of pinpoint and say, here's a great example of, of what I talked about today? So um, I'll use the first example, the first scenario that I had with the 11-year-old asthmatic patient who had profound pathology to the point where he needed to be intubated. Um, When we had gotten there, his peak airway pressures were very high. He was not sedated. He was intubated. He had no sedation, no pain medicine, and it was a hot mess when we walked in the door. Um, I immediately gave him analgesia, sedation. The patient calmed down. His numbers improved. And you know what? I thought I was all that in a bag of chips. So I continued to package the patient, um, and the respiratory therapist had said, hey, it's kind of hard to bag. I thought I was doing a great job with my assessments, making sure that I was preventing badness. Um, We put him in the ambulance. All of his medicine wore off like a flip of a switch. He sat straight up on the cot, and here he is intubated. I re-sedated him. We got to the hospital, and the patient ended up having a bradycardic arrest. Even though I had been assessing for um, 
uh, tension pneumothorax or a pneumothorax, I thought I was being a really good clinician. And it ended up being devastating for my, for my patient. As we did a critical assessment of that transport, I realized that the decisions the resident and I made about purposely not putting him on the ventilator, about not paralyzing the patient, um, those in hindsight were not the right thing. I, I like to say I had excellent rationale for my wrong answer. There's a difference between doing something and learning from it or doing something and defending the fact that you did it. Correct. And I'm sure that there's a balance in your world where people will drift in one direction more than the other because of pride or professional decorum or whatever you might call it. But you really talked about, you know, being human, being realistic with yourself, being realistic with the ones that are around you. When you're in chaos, things are really hard to look at objectively. And you offered some examples of that. But at the same time, you said, you know, this could happen to any of you. So is that really the reset button for the people that are in that room, realizing this could be you tomorrow and it's not the worst thing that can happen? Is that, is that a, a fair way to sort of really simplify what you said for an hour? I, I think that's a great simplification. I think the other primary message outside of the fact that we're human, we're going to make mistakes. The other central mes messages are, which are difficult in the ER, is to slow our roll. So when we have eight hands popping out of our head because we're multitasking, that's not necessarily the safest thing for our patient. Um, difficult to avoid, but it, again, it, it involves that humility that I need help, that I can't do this myself. The other thing, the other central message is an honest debriefing. To your point, not at the time of chaos and maybe not that shift, but coming back together as a team sure. because mistakes are rarely made with a singular person, right? It's, it's usually a collective set of errors that are going to lead you to disaster or a collective set of actions that lead you to triumph. Um, but being able to honestly come back and debrief that and say, this is what we did really well and these are opportunities for us or things that we want to change and not do again. There's an empowerment piece in this that maybe isn't overt, but it's there to say, take ownership of everything you do, not just when things go great, but the learning experiences that you can have, because as you pointed out in that younger segment, they're just been around long enough to be dangerous. It's kind of generally how, how you put it. So if you were to be one-on-one -on -one with somebody who has a little bit of that go get them spirit and maybe, you know, isn't working to not make mistakes, but is maybe playing with fire a little bit. How, how would you empower that person to reset their approach to things so that they're taking away the right things from the bad experiences as much as they are from the successes? You know what? I am so glad you brought that up because I don't want to leave the impression for this podcast or for this lecture that I was only speaking to the novice nurses because the, 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 the bipolar, bimodal part of this are nurses like me that have been doing this for a long time and think that we're all that in a bag of chips, right? And I've been there. I've done that. I've seen this patient a thousand times. And I think it comes from, I don't want to use the word policing because that might be uh, too strong or a negative connotation. I'm going to call it collective coaching collective feedback, 
We don't love ourselves enough. We don't love our peers enough. We don't say to our peers, oh my God, you kicked butt today. You were an awesome nurse. Thank you for doing such a great job. And we also don't pull each other to the side and say, girl, you got to get your head out of your butt because I know you got stuff going on at home and your head's not in the game. So we need collective love. It's that culture that you talked about, you know, resetting how you, those interpersonal relationships and ultimately there are a number of outside factors that ultimately will leak their way into your day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. So uh, the last question I have for you is you, you had a, uh, in each presentation or each uh, case that you presented, you had the keep me up at night questions. Mm-hmm. Some people would take that away as um, she's haunted by these things. Is it that drastic or is this the... I'm analytical and I'm going to roll these things over because I want to make sure the next time, because there will be a next time that I'm the best that I can be. So is it from a dark place or is it from a, this is a growth opportunity? Yes. Okay. So I, I have cases that will continue to haunt me because I don't have answers. That first scenario where my patient, the asthmatic patient had a bradycardic arrest, I still to this day do not know why that happened. And so because I can't identify it, I chew my cut on that transport frequently. On the others, after I'm done honestly crying my eyes out and self-flagellation that I'm a terrible nurse and I should not be in this career, I am able to center myself, calm myself down, look at things that I did well, as it, we did well as a team, and things that I could do better. And those are the opportunities. And that's where that communal self-love comes in. Because you know what? We're all feeling this way. Sure. We're all feeling like we're faking it till we make it. And I think if we, if we were more honest and we shared with each other, we'd have more communal love and more support. Terry Campbell, you know, we appreciate you being a part of the Fall Regional Symposium here in Milwaukee and taking a little extra time to sit and talk with us on the podcast. If people want to tap into a little bit of your wisdom on an individual level, what's the best way for them to reach you, to send you a question or to be that, you know, to use that ear or shoulder that you offered up to our audience here? Yeah, please. I, I'm, I'm with great sincerity um, asking and begging people to reach out to me. So my email is T-L-C-M-E-D at outlook.com, I'm sorry, at outlook.com. So it's TLC med ed, one word, at outlook.com. Please feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to help you debrief. I'm happy to help you um, with education or um, I really enjoy beer. So I'll go ahead and play with you. <laughs> Terry Campbell, thank you so much for being a part of everything here that's going on in Milwaukee. And I uh, appreciate your, your candor, uh, not just with the audience, but here for the podcast audience. And as I mentioned earlier, to really give them a sense of the type of presentation, the type of education, you know, and it doesn't feel like education when it's done in the way that, that I felt you did it earlier. Um, so thank you for being a part of all that and, and taking some time for the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So that'll do it for our live on-site podcast here in Milwaukee, the Fall Regional Symposium. You can read about everything that went on here in Milwaukee in an upcoming issue of ENA Connection. And as always, we appreciate you listening and we look forward to you joining us for a future episode of the podcast. And because I didn't introduce myself at the beginning, I'll sign off by saying this is Dan Campana, the Senior Manager for PR and Communications. Thank you for listening to the ENA Podcast. <laughs>